Britannia rules the waves. Britons never, never, never shall be slaves. Not only Lord Nelson, but thousands of slaves are fighting the French on the watery main to protect their own country of honor and wealth. But the French, they would not yield until they yield unto death. Now the merchants of Yarmouth, when they heard so, says, come brother seamen to church, let us go. And it's there we will build a most beautiful path in remembrance of Nelson, hero of the Nile. Your plan, said Britannia, were excellent and good, a monument for Nelson and a sword for Collingwood. Let it be of good marble and perpetuate his name. Let us in bright gold write, he died for England's fame. Rule Britannia, Britannia rules the waves. Britons never, never, never shall be slaves. As soldiers and sailors, as I have been told, keep themselves in readiness their rights for to hold, their rights to maintain and their cause to support. In
an indescribable holocaust unparalleled in history is about to bombard planet Earth. It is described as the Great Tribulation, Revelation 7.14, the Hour of Temptation, Revelation 3.10, a day of great wrath, Revelation 6.17, and an hour when the wrath of God Almighty is unleashed in all the world, Revelation 19.15. This calamitous time of judgment lasts approximately seven years, since the 69 weeks of Daniel total 483 years, each week representing seven years, it is only logically deducible to make the final 70th week a period of seven years also. This harmonizes with the calculations of the second half of the tribulation hour described as a period of 42 months, Revelation 11.2, or 1,260 days, Revelation 11.3. When one considers God's purpose for the tribulation, it is difficult to place the bride of Christ into such a horrendous scene. Why should Christ's virgin bride suffer the judgments of the seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven vials? Why place her in the midst of the judgments recorded in Revelation chapter 6, 8, 9, 11, 15, and 16, when the church cannot be found beyond the third chapter of the book? The purpose of Christ during the worst hour in history is not to abuse his bride, but to execute wrath upon an ungodly world. God does this in a twofold manner. First, he purges out any Jewish rebels before establishing his millennial kingdom. God states, I will cause you to pass under the rod, the great tribulation, and I will purge out from among you the rebels and them that transgress against me, and they shall not enter the land. Ezekiel 20, verses 37 and 38. Secondly, he punishes Gentile rejectors. God continues, I will execute vengeance in anger and fury upon the Gentiles, such as they have not heard, Micah 5.15. So the tribulation hour is primarily a time of judgment upon a Christ and God-rejecting world, both Jewish and Gentile. This judgment is so horrifying that Titus 2.13 becomes an absurdity if one must first look for seven years of heartache text states, looking for that blessed or happy hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ. The reason this hope is a blessed or happy one is that the church escapes the turmoil of earth's glorious hour. This fact is confirmed by the teaching of Jesus. He said that the days of the Son of Man would be like the days of Noah and Lot, Luke 17 verses 26 to 32. In Noah's day, Enoch, a type of the church, was evacuated before the judgment of the flood, while Noah, a type of Israel, was preserved through it. Lot, in his removal to Zoar, before the fires fell, is also a type of the escaping church before atomic incineration begins. After God removed Lot and his loved ones, he said in Genesis 19:22, I could do nothing until Lot become or until Lot was removed. As it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the day of the Son of Man or at the return of the Lord. God did not fail to spare his prepared people in past history and will not fail his redeemed in the future. God's word makes it implicitly clear that the church will be spared the wrath of God. This day of great wrath, Revelation 6:17. This wrath is meted out to sinners who store up, treasure up, yea, accumulate wrath against the day of wrath, Romans 2.5. But this wrath is only for the wicked, 
Paul wrote, God hath delivered us Christians from the wrath to come, 1 Thessalonians 1.10. And again, God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ, 1 Thessalonians 5.9. This salvation from wrath cannot be the eternal deliverance from hell because the Christian already has that without Christ's return. The moment one believes, he is delivered from condemnation unto life, John 5.24. Because of it, there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8.1. The deliverance from wrath in 1 Thessalonians 1.10 has to do with Christ's return because the text states, we wait for his son from heaven who delivers us from the wrath to come. It does not take the return of Christ to deliver us from the wrath of hell. Salvation instantaneously accomplishes this. But the coming of Christ delivers us from the wrath of the coming tribulation hour. This is how God keeps us from, Greek, ek, out of, the hour of temptation which comes upon all the world, Revelation 3.10. The book of Revelation is also written chronologically and beautifully sets forth the believer's deliverance from wrath. Revelation 1.18 states, Write the things which thou hast seen, chapter 1. Write the things which are, chapters 2 and 3. Write the things which shall be, chapters 4 to 22. Presently, the 20th century finds us in Revelation chapter 3. The churches of Philadelphia and Laodicea are both present in modern Christendom. The church of Philadelphia is snatched away before the sealed judgments begin in Revelation 6. God tells this group, I will keep you from the hour of temptation that comes upon all the world to try them that dwell on the earth. Chapter 3, verse 10. John sees the great escape for evacuation of believers in chapter 4, verse 1. He says, after this, after what? After the seven church program described in chapters 2 and 3 has run its course chronologically, then I looked and behold, a door was opened in heaven. And the first voice which I heard talking with me said, Come up hither, and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. I believe this to be the rapture, because 24 elders picturing the saints of all ages, old and New Testament believers, are already crowned and casting the rewards at Christ's feet in verses 10 and 11. The judgment seat has already taken place, and the rewards distributed as the chapter ends. Now, the crowning of the saints in chapter 4, plus the fact that the church is conspicuously absent, not even mentioned after chapter 4, certainly becomes meaningful if English and chronology mean anything. Two chapters later, Revelation 6, the tribulation judgments pictured by the seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven vials begin and continue until the King of Kings and Lord of Lords returns for the battle of Armageddon and the establishment of the kingdom. Revelation chapters 19 and 20. All this is so compellingly clear that even if post-tribulationists converted to Judaism, they could not miss the rapture. They could not become elect Israel, even if they tried. Now, let's consider another great pre-trib truth. The 24 elders. After the come up hither of Revelation 4.1, 24 elders are casting crowns at Christ's feet, verses 10 and 11. And the throne is set up in chapter 5. God's throne are 24 thrones on which sat 24 elders, clothed in white garments, and they had on their heads crowns of gold. Now, who are the 24 elders? And this is of extreme importance for pre-trib proponents, so listen carefully. They are the representatives of God's people in both Testaments, the saints of all ages. The book of Revelation unites the representative groups often. 
Chris in describing the holy city in Revelation 21, verses 12 to 14. The names of the 12 tribes of Israel, Old Testament, are posted on the gates, while the names of the 12 apostles, New Testament, are inscribed upon the city's foundations. Now, 12 and 12 is 24. These 24 elders do something that is spine-tingling in chapter 5, verses 8 and 9. They fall down before the Lamb, Jesus, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of saints. And they say, Thou art worthy to take the book and open the seals thereof, Christ. For thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation, and hast made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. Here we witness the praise session of the ages. Old and New Testament believers represented by 24 heads, praising the Lamb of God for shedding his blood. Someone says, Old Testament believers were not saved by the blood. Listen here. No one but no one gets to heaven without the shed blood of Jesus. That's why Acts 10.43 declares to Jesus, give all the prophets, Old Testament prophets witness, that through his name, whosoever believeth in him shall receive remission of sins. Therefore, Old and New Testament believers, pictured by their representative heads, are singing about the blood in Revelation 5.9 before the sealed judgments begin in chapter 6, which commences tribulation hour. The Jews of old looked ahead to Calvary's shed blood as they offered their animal sacrifices, while the church looks back to the cross as the communion or memorial supper is conducted. Either way, it is the blood that maketh an atonement for the soul, Leviticus 17.11. Now, since these elders are already crowned, and since no one can be crowned until he is either resurrected if dead or translated if living, obvious that the resurrection has occurred by the time one hits Revelation 4.10. 1 Thessalonians 4.16 has transpired. We conclude then that the scene in Revelation chapters 4 and 5 is the direct result of the rapture, the great escape before the judgments begin in chapter 6.
They said that the church was already undergoing the trials of the tribulation. They even produced a falsified letter forging Paul's name that stated the church was in the hour of trial. Recent poster writers have almost gone as far in falsifying facts. They even print names of men who adopted their viewpoint, and the men named wonder how they arrived at such a conclusion. But Paul, the misquoted one, settled a mess by stating in 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 1 to 8, Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and by our gathering together unto him, that you be not soon shaken in mind, or be troubled, neither by spirit, nor by word, nor by letter, as from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come except there come a falling away first. And that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, who poseth and exalted himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Remember ye not that when I was yet with you, I told you these things. And now you know what withholdeth, that he might be revealed in his time. For the mystery of iniquity doth already work. Only he who now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way. And then shall that wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth, and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. Paul, deeply perturbed by the forged letter, states, I understand that someone produced a letter, supposedly written by me, stating that the church was presently experiencing the pangs of the tribulation hour. Well, don't believe that lying prattle. Don't be bothered, bewildered, or shaken over such a distortion of facts. I could not and would not write such a letter simply because the tribulation cannot begin until two things occur. There must be a falling away first. Two, the man of sin must be revealed. Scholars of the past rendered the terminology falling away as a catching away. They talked about a time when the law of gravitation would be broken and men would fall away via the rapture to meet the Lord in the clouds. Other scholars believe that the Greek apostasius meant that an apostatized departure from the faith would occur. The important point to consider is that either must happen before the man of sin, the lawless one, the beast of the 70th week is revealed. This introduction of the Antichrist to the world inaugurates the tribulation hour. This means that the day of the Lord or tribulation period cannot begin until this monstrous maniac is identified to earth citizens. And he cannot be revealed until the restraining influence of the Holy Spirit is removed. shall that wicked one be revealed, 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 6 to 8. This does not mean that the Holy Spirit must be removed from the earth. This is impossible because he, as God, is omnipresent everywhere at all times, Psalm 139, verses 7 to 11. So it means that his hindering or restraining power over sin that keeps the Antichrist from mounting the throne is removed. This happens as the Holy Spirit's temples, believers' bodies, 1 Corinthians 6, 19, are taken from earth to heaven. Then the soul of the earth, the light of the world, is removed. This immediately produces corruption and darkness on an unprecedented scale. Allowing the world dictator to come to power, this begins the tribulation hour. Then the beast of the ages rules during earth's bloodiest hour, proclaiming himself as God or Christ. 2 Thessalonians 2.4 
He rules until Christ returns to earth at the conclusion of the seven years. Then the Lord consumes him with the spirit of his mouth and destroys him with the brightness of his coming, 2 Thessalonians 2.8. The church of Jesus Christ is also repeatedly told to watch for his coming. In order to avoid any confusion, let's stick with church truth, the epistles of Paul. Paul says, let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober, 1 Thessalonians 5.6. Again, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, Titus 2.13. In fact, the special crown is presented for those who watch. 2 Timothy 4.8 states, Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all of all, so that love is appearing. So believers are to watch for the Lord, not for tribulation, not for the Antichrist, not for persecution, and not for martyrdom, but for Christ. This is the blessed, all-happy hope. Post-tribulationists do not have an imminent hope for which to watch. Why? Imminency, as applied to the Lord's return, does not mean all at once or rapidity in returning. Instead, it is a constant expectation of him on the basis that there is no revealed event that must precede his return. This is not so for post-tribulationists who know from Daniel that when the Antichrist mounts his throne, the 70th week or seven-year period begins. Revelation 11:2 informs them that since half of the tribulation hour is 42 months, then 84 months from the rise of Antichrist marks the day that Christ returns and consumes the world dictator with the brightness of his coming. In fact, Revelation 12:5 gives post-tribulationists all the evidence necessary to count off the days to the very end, because 1260 days is presented as one half of the horrendous period and 2,520 days as the completed schedule. So if Antichrist came to power, for instance, December 1st, 2,520 days later, he would be toppled at Christ's return. This is not imminency, but exact mathematical calculation. One would not have to watch for the imminent return of Christ, but count toward the expected day. This viewpoint contradicts the words of Jesus, who said in Matthew 24, 36, But of that day and hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels of heaven, but my Father in Post-tribulations could count off the seven seal judgment, the seven trumpet judgment, and the seven vile judgment. They could then bob up to greet the Lord and bob down for Armageddon. In the meantime, the crowning of the saints carried up to the land, because both took place in heaven while they were still in earth. They had no time intervals for such pleasures. They shot up and splashed down like an effective space. Missing it all. Well, praise God, this will not happen for any part of Christ's church, even post-tribulation. Like it or not, you will be there. Christ cannot have 1% of his church on earth while 99% is in glory. His body must be there in its entirety. His bride cannot be defective, missing fingers or toes at the marriage. Therefore, in concluding this study, let's ask the question one more time. Will the church go through the administration of God's wrath upon the earth? I believe not. Why? Millions upon millions of believers are already in heaven. All who died in Christ for approximately 2,000 years are already with Christ. All said to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord.
Thank you. 